Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I'm your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Today's episode is going to be super fun. My special guest today is Mary Koser, the CEO and co-founder of Holme. Founded in 2013, Holme is a company that creates convenient, real ingredient, nutrient-dense snacks and foods. You can find their product at a variety of stores, including grocery stores, coffee shops, gyms, and other types of stores. To learn more about Mary's story and her company, visit Holme.com. Mary, thanks for taking the time. I'm excited that you're here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So, Mary, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. We'll talk about how you came up with the idea, who you sell to, number and types of products, the number of employees, things like that. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. We'll talk about how you launched your business and some key functions of your business. And the final part is the let's get personal component where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Mary, it's time for some questions. Are you ready for the interview? I'm as ready as I will ever be. Awesome. Here we go. Give me the basics. Mary, tell us the story. How did you originally discover and come up with the whole me idea? Well, I'm definitely not what you would call a serial entrepreneur. It was not my goal in life to start a company. Um, Unlike some students who actually go to school and try to study, you know, entrepreneurial management. I spent 21 years at the University of Minnesota. Uh, The last decade of my career as dean of the undergraduate business program there within the Carlson School of Management and really consider myself, while I think I was exposed to the basics of of management education in in those positions at the University of Minnesota, um, I'm kind of an accidental entrepreneur. About a little over a decade ago, my husband was diagnosed uh, at that time with type 1 diabetes. So what some people refer to as children's diabetes, a lot of young, younger people in life find out that they're insulin dependent. My husband found out as a, you know, in his late 30s. And as a result of that, uh, we really reflected on what and how we were eating as a family. At the time, I had a couple of kids uh, who were, you know, just in grade school and I don't want to say fussy eaters, but we weren't overly concerned with what we found in the cupboards. And um, as soon as Michael, my husband, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, we were also in the process of, you know, cleaning up our 
activity, uh, what we found in our cupboards. And um, I did quite a bit of reading at that point in time on autoimmune disease, insulin dependence, uh, low sugar diets, etc. Simultaneously, I was just getting exposed to one of the first CrossFit gyms in the state of Minnesota. Um, so I was very intrigued by how the body worked, how I could lift heavy things and not have it bear, you know, incredible impact on my body. And so one thing led to another and I started experimenting with removing glutens and grains from the diet. I started bringing snacks that I was creating in the kitchen into my local CrossFit gym. I had a avid following rather quickly. First of all, I'd bring in free food, which is always a plus. But second of all, I was bringing in things that I think were not readily available at the time. And so that was really the impetus for starting the business. And how did you see the specific homey idea become a business opportunity? Was there some sort of moment when that occurred or struck you? You know, there was. As I was bringing in various bars and granolas into my gym, I had a close-knit group of friends who happened to also own the gym who were starting up kind of something called the Paleo Challenge, where for 30 days we would eliminate glutens, grains, and dairies, and um, sugars from our diet. And as I was bringing in these brand new sorts of makeup bars and things that I was bringing in from my kitchen, there were so many people that found, couldn't believe that, first of all, they were grain and gluten free, that Mike, one of the owners of the gym, said, you know, I've got a bunch of events coming up. I, you know, could you just start making these for me and I'll just pay you for the ingredients? And since he was a good friend, I said, sure. And my daughter, just to be cute, was making labels in the basement so that they would be kind of cute bars and we were putting them in saran wrap and taking them into the gym and as long as he covered my ingredients you know it was all for fun and uh, there was just nothing out in the marketplace like this so that's really how it got its start I don't want to say it was a bake sale but something similar that is just such a fun story and now as you look back and you think about your brand what is really specifically unique about the brand well, what's unique about the brand, I think, even today, I mean, as, as I think about this and I hear myself describe it over a decade later, I think we were, we were definitely ahead of our time. As a company back then, I was getting a lot of encouragement from my entrepreneurial friends to start a business because there was nothing, you know, gluten-free in and of itself was still sort of being introduced in the marketplace. Uh, Grain-free or this whole kind of paleo diet was virtually unheard of. And um, really trying to eat in that way so that it's much easier on your digestive system and your autoimmune system was just really unheard of. And so we were definitely ahead of our time. There was nobody out there quite like us, which is why I think I stalled on the business idea for a while, just because I didn't know what to do with it. It was so new and I wasn't sure there'd be a market for it because I would be the pioneer in that space. So I kind of held on to the idea for a while. My husband was maybe a little bit more enthusiastic. So when I was playing around with names, we went ahead and, you know, secured the whole me domain, you know, got some trademark stuff going, bought up the website and the email site and just sat on it for about five years. Wow. That long. Yeah. Very interesting. And then I found a business partner. You know, I, I continued to come back to it. I continued to experiment in the space. 
And, um, you know, it finally dawned on me that I could do this and I didn't have to do it alone. I think that's what was holding me up a little bit was that I needed a partner who understood the food space. And I, you know, as kind of the accidental entrepreneur, I, cert- I did not study food or food science. I uh, come from a pretty straight up liberal arts background. I was an English major and a German major. So my time in the kitchen was purely as a, um, you know, just go flowing on my creative juices. So I really thought, you know, hey, maybe if I can find a business partner who's, educated and had experience in this food space, maybe the two of us could actually make it a go and we could become full-on partners. You know, I can certainly really understand that perspective to sort of hold off uh, because of the lack of partner. I think when I started a couple of companies, one was a snowboard and ski clothing company. I sort of felt insecure about it going in because I didn't have a fashion background. I didn't have merchandising background, nothing like that. And we ended up manufacturing in China and doing all sorts of things. But in another company, just this website now, Venture Superfly, I always felt like I needed a developer. So for quite a while, I was holding back when in a lot of cases you don't need that. But I think it does hold people back. I think that's absolutely true. I think a lot of us kind of go in thinking we're not worthy to some extent. And that can be expressed in different ways. But, you know, who are we? Who am I to do something like this? Kind of lingers in somebody's background, in their mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was at an age where, you know, I had two young children. I was, you know, just entering my 40s. And I thought, well, I want to do with a company. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm gainfully employed. I have this amazing position. I have no desire to be a full-time entrepreneur. And in, and that's when I just started thinking about it differently. At the same time, given my role at the Carlson School, I would say that I had access to a lot of successful entrepreneurs who were challenging me to really pursue the idea. And also were very clear with me that, you know what, you cannot be successfully a part-time entrepreneur, which is true. <laughs> right. And, and it's I was going to ask, it seems being in that environment at a business school, you're sort of, even if you have no intentions to become an entrepreneur, you're certainly being nurtured in the right environment, whether you know it or not. Absolutely. You know, as I, as I look back on it, I think, you know, those, those couple of decades of relationships that I was able to build in the business community and in our entrepreneurial community, not only locally and regionally, but nationally, definitely positioned us for, you know, success a little earlier in our company. Yeah. Let's get into some of the more basics again. Let's talk about the the types of products that you offer. What sort of categories or how would you describe the scope of your products? Yeah, right now we're we're still I mean, we're obviously we're we're maybe graduating this year from startup to small company. I don't know if there's a real definition behind that, but um you know, we've been in existence for four years, um, Krista and I, my business partner together. You're going to find our products in about 1,200 retail outlets across the United States, everywhere from, you know, Whole Foods markets in four regions nationally to Lunds and Byerly is here locally in the Twin Cities community, Kowalski's, uh, High V's across the country, Roundy's, Mariano's a lot of smaller co-ops around the country, and we're just starting to get into some other national retailers in various states around the country. We currently have seven SKUs. Uh, Right now, they're all in the cluster space, and you might say, what's a cluster? Uh, Whole Me Clusters, they're 
They're nutrient-dense, grain-free and gluten-free granola-like clusters that are super versatile. They can be eaten straight out of the bag. They can be thrown in with a little Greek yogurt in the morning. They can be eaten with, you know, almond milk or... Um, so they're, they're a very versatile snack product that we're finding people are really gravitating towards. And what sets them apart is their... First of all, I think when you try the product, you're blown away by the flavor profiles. You know, my business partner, Krista, is a pastry chef, trained pastry chef. And so her attention to detail in our flavor profiles definitely sets our product apart. I think the texture of our clusters are soft and cookie-like. And then people turn the package around and look at the ingredients, and they are the simplest ingredients that you can imagine. There's no preservatives, there's no artificial sugars or sweeteners, and they're gluten and grain-free. And you really, I think people are hard-pressed to find a product out on the market that can deliver like ours can in that regard. That's terrific. How many employees do you have now? So right now we are four full-time employees. Um, there's myself as CEO. Krista, our co-founder, is kind of our uh, chief operating officer and our chief R&D and financial. I kind of wear the hat of chief marketing officer and sales officer. We've hired a full-time sales director um, just in December of this year. And then a month before that, we hired a full-time, I want to say operations manager. So somebody who manages our warehouse, the um, intake and outtake of our product to the various distributors across the country, manages our online presence and does a lot of our day-to-day -day kind of operational support with our co-packers and manufacturers. Fantastic. Mary, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions and many of those assumptions prove to be different or even wrong from compared to what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Holmi's uniqueness, did your original assumption about that uniqueness prove motivating to consumers or did you discover a different selling proposition after being in business for a while and after getting some customer feedback? That's actually a great question. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier how we were a little bit ahead of our time. When we originally came to market in early 2013, uh, we were the first on the market with what are refrigerated bars. And um, those were, we really saw ourselves back at that point in time as a bar company, that we were going to really innovate in the bar category. And we had pretty amazing tasting bars. The caveat was they needed to be refrigerated, which at that point in time we viewed as a advantage. And I still do in some ways, but we actually <laughs> killed our bars last year, mainly because refrigerated bar space is a space that as a small startup company, we didn't have the financial backing to really pioneer that space. And so as we were scaling nationally, the one thing I didn't want to be was, you know, people loved the taste of our bars. They were buying them here locally in just about, you know, every grocery store available. But if they would put that bar in their workout bag or their backpack and then open it up a few days later, guess what? Because it was a fresh, all-natural bar and there was egg in the product, you might find a little mold on that bar. And so that really caused us, you know, the, the consumer is not quite educated even today for refrigerated bars because they're not a cliff bar. They can't sit in your backpack for six months and be okay. 
And so unless you're going to consume them immediately, we kind of spent, I would say, longer than we should have deciding that the value proposition to scale nationally with a product like that made it a little cost prohibitive in terms of, you know, the products that we might have to be buying back, which is why we sort of pivoted and moved towards our clusters where they're still all natural, shorter shelf life than what you'd find, I think, in some other areas. But, you know, a a product that is shelf stable for nine months, which is a huge advantage as we're scaling. Yeah. And I think I'm glad you pointed that out because I think it's so, so common for aspiring entrepreneurs that have a food product idea and they they don't realize the significant barrier that refrigeration can cause both in terms of shelf space in the store and the size of orders that are purchased by the retailer and even from a consumer perspective there is a big reason that a brand like five hour energy shot that they, they grew so quickly and so fast because they could just put them anywhere they didn't right. have to put them in the refrigerator. And anytime refrigeration occurs, I think I've talked to so many entrepreneurs where that becomes a real barrier. So I'm glad you shared that. I think I think people need to know that. Yeah, it was a big aha moment for us. And it was hard because it was, an, it, you know, that's one of those classic founder um, emotional decisions where we thought that was going to be really difficult. So, you know, even to people today who still are like, oh, I want the bars back. I'd say, you know what? They're in the vaults. <laughs> They may or may may not come back someday. We'll see. Yeah, but that's a great that's a great point to make. Tell me how. So, Mary, here we are in the "Tell Me How" segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Mary, let's talk about raising capital. Did you originally raise capital for Holmey? Yes. Um, raising capital was something that we knew early on, um, kind of by the close, I guess I would say, of 2015, that was going to be necessary to keep us around in the long term. And so we uh, decided, uh, Krista and I decided to raise a million dollars at that point in time and uh, really kind of, you know, used, utilized our attorney and came up with a, uh, you know, a, a plan and a presentation, investor presentation, that we started shopping around um, kind of the Twin Cities community. Uh, one thing I would say about that, you know, coming into entrepreneurship a little bit later in life, and I, and I think that there's some, there are interesting statistics around this, but I would definitely say that as a 40-something entrepreneur, raising capital is probably a lot easier than as a 20-something entrepreneur, simply because, you know, the relationships that I've been able to develop over the years. And I think that, you know, when you're raising capital as a startup company and you're asking for money where you don't have a significant track record of any sort, they're really investing in you. And so, you know, the pitch was really, the folks were investing in Krista and myself and whether or not they felt like we are smart enough to pull off what we say we're gonna do because we don't have enough data in the marketplace to support it yet. So it it took us some time to develop that presentation, um, but you know, we successfully raised a million dollars in June of last year. So June, 2016, we closed on that uh, raise. 
And would you call that source of capital friends and family, or were they more sophisticated than that? I would say it was a combination of friends and <laughs> sophisticated investors. Yeah, and the uh, sophisticated investors, were they people with consumer packaged goods background? Were they familiar, and could they add value to what you were doing beyond just the cash? You know, early on, as uh, you know, I was really getting uh, some practice on our investor pitch. Early on, I realized, and after talking to several entrepreneurs themselves about their experience in raising capital, I did get some great tips and insights. And one of them was that you know not all money is created equal. And so as we were strategically thinking about our capital raise, I wanted to make sure that the folks around the table, first of all, we're all accredited investors. So we did set kind of a minimum investment amount as we were raising our million dollars. We didn't want a lot of small investments. We wanted significant investments of at least $50,000 or more. And so we were looking for accredited investors. P.S. There's a great program in the state of Minnesota that we were able to take advantage of that gives those investors some uh, credit at the end of the year through the angel tax credit program. But um, we were able to kind of paint the picture and really look for investors who would not only provide us with the financial funding, but with the know-how that we knew we were going to need both on a board of directors and in our shareholders to add value as we grow as a company. Mm -hmm. And how reluctant were you at first to go out and raise money and get in front of people? I know that holds a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs back. It absolutely does. And I think that idea of losing control of your company from an equity standpoint can be sometimes paralyzing um, or even giving up anything. And I think we forget to put our the big picture in the back of our head that says, you know, as our company grows and our valuation continues to improve, a smaller piece of the pie is worth a whole lot more than 100% of a pie that's not worth anything. And um, so we continually had to remind ourselves of that. We also wanted to make sure that as we were raising equity, again, we kept the number of investors relatively small. We wanted experience. We wanted some sophistication. And we wanted folks who were going to be in it for the long haul. So, you know, based on the value proposition, we were able to pitch to them. You know, we're hopeful that when we have a second capital raise, we'll be able to, you know, successfully do much of it with our current investor base. And did the capital raise go smoothly? Were there any hiccups? You know, it went, I think, as smoothly as it could have. I think um, one of the pieces of advice I received early on was to have a lead investor so that as we were having conversations uh, with other potential investors, we already had somebody committed at a certain level um, who believed in us and who was willing to speak on our behalf. And having that in my back pocket as I was conducting investor conversations about our raise was very helpful. So that as folks were seriously considering an investment whole me, they had somebody they could call and talk to who knew me quite well, knew Krista quite well, and could speak about you know our vision and what we hope to accomplish with our company. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about finding a manufacturer or somebody to help you produce the whole me product. 
Did you originally manufacture the product yourself and are you currently manufacturing yourself or did you ever go out and find somebody to help you produce? You know, originally we were using a uh, community kitchen that we were renting on an hourly basis here in the Twin Cities. And that was, I think, two years ago in January, we decided, you know, we're just, this is getting to be, we're spending a lot of our time in the kitchen and hiring part-time help to actually make and package product when we really want to be, at the end of the day, a trusted natural food brand um, that's innovating on a regular basis. And so in order to really move that forward, we found a small co-packer in the Twin Cities area to kind of take us to the next level. There is a really thriving and vibrant food community here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and it's a pretty amazing network of individuals that I drew from immediately. And so kind of networking and finding a co-manufacturer as a smaller company was not as difficult as I thought it would be. That does not mean it was not without issues, but you know, it happened rather quickly. And what sort of issues do you have, at least early on, when you start handing that process over? That's got to be a little bit challenging at first. Pretty daunting, yes. And I think, you know, the big one is quality control. And as a product line that really prides itself on, you know, homey clusters, um, if a cluster is not clustery enough, and it's a bag full of crumbs, you know, the value proposition of that bag is not very enticing. And if we really sell ourselves as a soft, you know, crunchy on the outside, soft on the inside cluster, again, I think the amount of um, oversight that was required uh, was really significant. Not underbaked, not overbaked, but just right. Kind of the three bear, you know, the Goldilocks. It was it was an ongoing challenge um, to get the product, you know, like we were making it and had control over it in the kitchen. The other thing to remember is when you're scaling to any degree, recipes change slightly, you know, cook times change slightly. And thank goodness for my business partner and her attention to detail because it really required quite a bit of handholding. Let's talk about selling the product to retailers. Now, you didn't have much of a background on that. So early on, how did you learn to do that? What were those first retailer buyer approaches like? You know, they were very unsophisticated. And I think Krista and I originally, and maybe like a lot of young food entrepreneurs in particular, assumed that we would be, you know, easy to sell into all the local co-ops, Everybody wants a good local brand. Um, it's not going to be any problem getting on the shelf. And it really was. In fact, it took quite a bit of time for us to get on the shelf of a handful of co-ops in the Twin Cities community. I think we just, we, we underestimated that any entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur, I think is going to give a startup the advice to always look bigger than you are. You know, come with a buttoned up presentation, with a sales proposition, and with product that looks like it belongs on the shelf. And uh, so we had a little tweaking to do. Um, we were not sophisticated in that regard. And early on, as we were networking with other small business, small food companies, we learned that, you know, we needed ultimately to get a little help in the sales area from 
sales brokers, which is very kind of commonplace, I think, in the um, CPG food space, um, to help us get on the shelf and to get the meetings that we needed to set up to be heard by the buyers. And how simple was it to attract the help of these brokers? Let's say you approached 10 of them at the time, and I'm not sure you did, but if you if you did, do you think all 10 would have wanted to help out or do some have to have a specific interest in what you're doing? I think some have to have a specific interest in what we're doing. We've made a very intentional decision to scale in the natural and specialty food space before we hit conventional real hard. And so we really wanted to find brokers who were focused on the natural and specialty space. So the Whole Foods of the world, the co-ops, the Sprouts, the Fresh Times, those kinds of, um, of retailers. And so we've really, I want to say, successfully managed that process. But it took, you know, it took quite a bit of time um, to really get there. And I would also say uh, with our recent hiring of a sales director in just December, I think one of the things that we quickly forget when we're relying on brokers to sell our brand is that brokers are representing many brands at the same time. And um, sometimes if your voice is not at the table, you might not get on the shelf. And so as we were thinking strategically about our future and our aggressive growth plans, we wanted to make sure that we hired a more sophisticated sales director with 15 years of CPG sales experience to help us accelerate that process and make sure that when we're meeting with the, you know, the Kroger's of the world and the Safeway Albertsons and the Targets that we've got the sophistication needed to be able to really kind of have those conversations. I think a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs in this natural foods space also are not prepared at all to work with distributors and all of the sort mm. of programs that go into that and they don't plan on those expenses. Are you working with distributors now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're working with um, the, the big natural distributors in the um, in our space are UNFI and Kehi. And, you know, it's a little bit of the chicken and egg as well. Um, where a lot of retailers won't look at you until you have dis distribution in a major distributor like a UNFI or a Kehi, but you know you need distribution. You need the orders from a Whole Foods market or you know ten small independents to give you enough clout to even open up a distribution center in one of those um, distribution companies. So getting your product into respected distributors hands takes time and energy and money that you know I, I have, of course I, I had no idea how complex this industry was <laughs> yeah, it certainly is it I, I went to a two-day program a, a number of years ago and learned all about that quite simply we weren't prepared to outlay the expenses required to succeed in the, in those channels Let's talk about pricing a little bit, which is sort of related to setting up distributorships and working with reps, brokers. Did you set your price accurately the first time or did you have some did you have to make some tweaks along the way, given that you have to also work with distributors and brokers? You know, I think in retrospect, we did. I think we had some good sound advice early on in conversations that we had with other food companies where, you know, you get one chance to set your price. You can always go lower. It's very difficult to go higher. 
And uh, in the natural food space, and especially in the space where we're playing, where we're using a lot of nuts and seeds and coconut oil and um, organic honey, our, our ingredient prices are not inexpensive. And so we did go for a higher price point because we also, you know, we went in with our eyes wide open and we also wanted to be on the, we wanted to be, a, we want to be a, we're a boutique brand. So you're not going to find us, you know, in the $2.99 price range ever. But if you look at our ingredient profile, you'll know why. And so that's also why we've made a decision to really start in that natural and specialty food space where, you know, the consumer at a Whole Foods market or at a Kowalski's or Lunds and Byerly's is willing to pay a little bit more for some certain convenience. And um, that's where we're driving our velocities right now so that as we expand as a company and introduce new product lines at other price points, we'll be more compelling to a conventional grocer as well. How are consumers and even retail buyers, but I guess primarily consumers, how are they learning about your product? We have a very robust social media presence. So whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I know we just got a Snapchat this week. <laughs> so we're moving and shaking in all the right spaces. And we've been very fortunate. Early on as a company, we had distribution in a lot of the CrossFit gyms. And now locally, there's another um, kind of boutique fitness studio called Alchemy. Um, so they've been early adopters of our pro of uh, selling our product in their fitness studios. As a result of that and some of those passionate consumers that we've built up over the last four years, we've got just an amazing following. We sponsor a lot of athletic events where we have smaller kind of single serve size packaged clusters that we'll give out for free. So it's really getting in front of consumers who will resonate with our brand. And typically that's, you know, a 30 to 45 year old, primarily female buyer who's spending a pretty significant part of her expendable income on food and or health and wellness. And how do you aim the priority of those efforts, those marketing efforts to help get the product off of the store shelves? Yeah, it's still a little bit of art and science and not very sophisticated. It's an area that I personally plan to spend a lot more attention on in the coming year. Um, you know, as we're being, we really do extremely well in our hometown market. You know, at any grocery store where you find our product being sold here in the Twin Cities community, we're doing, our velocities are just crazy strong. But, you know, now we're in the southern region of Whole Foods, so you'll find, you know, Whole Me at um, your Atlanta Whole Foods store. Or in San Francisco, we're in the Whole Foods stores, and we're just getting into the mid-Atlantic up in Washington, D.C. And so right now, what we're really trying to do is focus on key kind of health and wellness uh, influencers in those markets that we can get our product into their hands so that they start talking about it on social media and it drives trial. I think one of the things as a company, in fact, just on Friday, we had a team retreat and we were talking about the consumer experience. And, and I think we feel strongly that it's experience and then educate. I think once people try our product and they have the experience of whole me, actually physically in their mouth, and then we can educate them on what they're eating, it's a win. People nine times out of 10 are gonna be buying multiple bags of whole me. 
And so it's really just trying to find those more mass opportunities with influencers to get our product out there. Let's get personal. So Mary, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that nine out of 10 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is special and really highly unusual. What motivates a person like you, Mary, to <laughs> stop just talking about launching a business and then actually go out and start a business like Hold Me? Hmm. You know, I've been thinking about that question quite a bit lately. I'm. I'm speaking to a group of alum at my alma mater later this month, and um, there's a particular quote that I read the other day that makes me chuckle but is true, and it's basically, life outside the box is no joke. <laughs> and I thought, you know, when, when everybody encourages you to think outside the box and live outside the box, it's easy to say and it's really hard to do. And of course, I'm sure in your podcasts, you've heard many entrepreneurs say the highs are really high and the lows are really low. But I think what happened for me and for my co-founder is was the perfect storm. I think, you know, I was able to find someone, we complement each other. We are we are probably polar opposites um, in a very productive and, and, and amazing way. And I think when we came together with similar values about how we want to build a company. And I think there are, you know, three values in particular that we kind of ground everything we do on from the employees we hire to the interns we hire to the brokers we hire is that we want authentic authenticity. We want somebody that's active and by active, I mean, they embrace an active maybe not only lifestyle, but an active brain. They're continually questioning and pushing the envelope. And then gutsy is number three. It's our third value. It's, 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 it's being okay living life outside the box when you're comfortably uncomfortable all the time. And I think what's exciting is, you know, coming off of a team retreat on Friday, I see the enthusiasm and the excitement in the four of us around the table and the opportunity to build something of significance that's truly a trusted brand in this natural food space. And it doesn't hurt when I'm reading, you know, um, on the Wall Street Journal that big food <laughs> is really struggling to innovate. And they're looking to these small innovative food companies to fill that void and to fill that gap. And so it seems to me like it's you know, it's now or never. It's the perfect place to be. I have no regrets being here. I stepped into it full time in July after an over 20 year career in, in uh, at the Carlson School of Management. And, you know, every day is a different day. I'm an optimistic person by nature, but every day has got some pretty significant, some days really intense challenges. You know, cash flow from any on any day is an issue. And so as we're building our team and building our culture, it helps to kind of step away and know that what we are doing, we've got pretty audacious goals, but I have, you know, I'm very confident that we're going to meet them in the next decade. Let's say in two years or three years, you get a great offer from General Mills to sell the company. <laughs> it's something that you just can't turn down. And let's just pretend you end up back at the Carlson School of Management in the role that you left Mm. I'm curious, 
how your perspective in that Carlson School role would change as a result of your startup experience, if at all? Well, I think it would. I think I I think it's easy to look at the successful brands that built themselves into something of significance and were purchased for, you know, 60 to 90 million dollars and are now super happy. Not very many of us will get there, and some of us will be doing it on our own and building, you know, this trusted foods brand. But I think I think what's most important and where my my brain has sort of changed just a little bit is you know I'm you don't have to have studied business to be a successful entrepreneur. I think what you have to have is the ability to think critically, to ask questions, to evaluate things quickly, to look at opportunities and see kind of the bigger picture. And you need to be a risk taker. You need to be comfortable. You know, one of our old CrossFit terms was embracing the suck. You've gotta be okay kind of bringing that into your day-to-day life and putting it where it is and living with it. And hopefully it helps you live outside the box in a way that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to, you know, to challenge, to think differently, to be creative and to truly have an influence and a mark in what you're creating. I mean, that's a pretty amazing opportunity. And when we're talking as a team and I see the lights and the eyes, it's enough to get me through a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. What has been your biggest joy since you've started Holmey? Mm, my biggest joy. You know, I love, I mean, I'm surprised as I'm looking at the the entrepreneurial landscape, but of course, in particular, the food and CPG food landscape, how few uh, female entrepreneurs there are out there. I love talking in particular to other women who are interested in starting their own business because there are so few of us doing it and doing it successfully um, that, you know, if I have one thing in life that I want to do, it's really to just help others like me know that, you know, there's not a right or a wrong time in your life to be an entrepreneur. I don't think there's a, you know, there's a lot of examples where people in their 40s and 50s, you know, are successful entrepreneurs. I think it's more finding that right idea and really building a plan around it and executing on it um, and being okay with change and with discomfort to get you there. And so I, you know, every day in conversations I have with, whether it be other entrepreneurs, students, you know, my interns, being able to be a bit of a role model to say, you know what, we can all be gutsy in our life. We can always be a little gutsier. You know, why live life on the line? Let's just, you know, go all over outside the lines and create the life, you know, that we really want to create. Many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones, experience self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, Mary, if any, And Mm, how have you dealt with it? (laughs) You know, I'm an avid reader. And so I I read probably an abnormal amount, um, several books a week. And uh, that really gets me through is reading about others' experiences, both in fiction and nonfiction, um, living life to the fullest on the edge, learning from mistakes. It, that really 
I think for me personally has helped me through some of the the darker days where I think, you know, this is this was a pretty tough proposition. Are we going to make payroll next week? I don't know. Um, so, you know, what are those little kind of glimmers that can tide you over? I have to say having a really great co-founder um, when the two of you can be completely transparent and honest and come at things from a, you know, a, a respectful uh, relationship can go a long way. If you have a, if you have a co-founder that you can agree to disagree with and grapple with, uh, it can make, you know, the, the process more enjoyable. What have you learned most about yourself, Mary, since starting a business? Since starting Whole Me, I think I've learned that I'm resilient. I can bounce back. I think I'm very good at creating cultures and communities. And as CEO of, you know, even though we're a small four-person company right now, I can see what will be in 10 years and the kind of environment that I want to create. Um, and I think that's a strength of mine. I'm a real uh, relationship-oriented individual. My door's always open. I think I can inspire. I think I'm great at realizing kind of collaborative opportunities, whether it be for companies or government organizations to work with innovative food startups, to do something greater to represent the state of Minnesota. I think I'm just realizing that some of what maybe I never labeled before as being strengths are really helping me thrive in this role as CEO. That is a great piece to share. I think a lot of people just miss those key things about themselves that once put in a different environment can really start to identify those things. So that's really nice to hear. Who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? And this is going to sound a little bit trite, but um, I grew up in a small town in northern Minnesota uh, with a very, you know, relatively strict Catholic upbringing, uh, parents that went to daily mass. And uh, my dad had an amazing faith. And I'm not, I'm not a super religious person to be, to just put that out there, but I think what my dad taught me ultimately, and he passed away three and a half years ago now, um, was faith, I think, can do wonderful things. And I believe in energy, and I believe in really kind of positive mental attitude, and what, you know, how we can, by our attitude and by the people we surround ourselves with, the employees that we hire to be part of our team, you know, if I don't have people surrounding me that believe in what we're doing fully and are really committed to making something great out of what we have headed in that direction, I don't necessarily want to waste my energy on them. And so I think the importance of that faith and that energy and that and and who and what we surround ourselves with goes a long way and I think my dad really taught me that from a from a different perspective that I'm now interpreting you know in a in maybe that 200 2017 um, definition finally Mary did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners well I think it's important to go into this you know, maybe we all need a little bit of rose-colored glasses just because I think it's difficult when you're going into a business 
or starting a business to understand what the lows are going to be like and what the highs are going to be like. So I do think if you're not an optimistic person by heart, it's going to be tough to stomach. But there's power in the people and the energy that you surround yourself in. Absolutely. And so finding, you know, whether it's remember that, you know, when you're raising capital and you're got investors and shareholders that are part of your team, everybody is going to have a little bit to say about what you're doing. And I think it's really critical to go into those conversations with your eyes wide open, because I know of many, many companies who maybe it's a wrong investor or two who didn't see eye to eye or who wanted to really micromanage a certain process. You know, it's easy to think that, oh, I just if once I have that million dollars or five hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is I need, life's going to be great and I'm going to be able to build this thing. Well, those people in those relationships are there forever. And so when you're raising capital, you're bringing on shareholders, you're bringing in investors, equity of your company is changing, the dynamics are changing, make sure that the values that you hold as a founder and as a company are reflected in those initial decisions of who you surround yourself with, because they will be part of you for as long as your company is around, most likely. And hopefully that will be a plus factor and an advantage to your company and not a negative because it can sink you a lot very quickly. Mary, excellent and wise advice. You've been a terrific guest offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us. It was my pleasure, John. Anytime. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.